Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Hi, and welcome to the this version of the Y87 podcast. With me today is Doris Irovich. Welcome, Doris. Hi, thanks, Tim. It's great to be talking to you. Oh, it's awesome to be talking to you. So where are you these days and what are you up to? So for the past five and a half years or so, I've been living in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Moved up here in part for work, in part for personal reasons. And I'm working, splitting my time between being a psychiatrist at Harvard. I am glad to say or sorry to say, depending on... uh, how you want to look it's at it? It's a fine institution, and you know I'm not going to make a, a cheap psychiatry joke now. But um, what kind of psychiatry do you do there? I work with students, so university students from the college and all the grad and professional schools, and that's what I've done pretty much my whole career in psychiatry. And then I divide my time between that and writing, which I've been doing pretty much my whole life as well. So I've always found that interesting about you. You've got this interesting dual, it's not just a career though, it's more than just a dual career. It's a dual set of passions, writing and psychiatry. How did you go down this parallel path? Yeah, I sometimes ask myself that too, Tim. <laughs> the passion that's been a constant throughout my life is the writing. And you know that started when I was very young, reading, writing, and When I went to college, I knew that I wanted to be a writer, but having grown up in an immigrant family, I didn't really think that that was an actual job title or job description. And my parents had always said, you know, it's great to be a writer as long as you have another kind of career or day job. So I kind of came into Yale thinking I needed to do something along the traditional lines that immigrant children often consider. So usually that's medicine, law, or engineering, at least in the community I was growing up in. So I was a little ambivalent, I would say, about medicine when I was in college. And I had an ambition at one point. I I had a deal with myself where I said, if I write a novel by the time I graduate from college, then maybe I'll put off medical school for a few years. But I now know that that was a very unrealistic goal and it was close to impossible. So I think I kind of set myself up to not be able to do that. Because as you know, going to college is uh, challenging enough in and of itself. So I didn't write a novel in college, although I was writing pretty consistently throughout college and then beyond as well. And luckily for me, I did also fall in love with neurobiology. So I think if that hadn't happened, I'm not sure what would have happened kind of career-wise if I would have tried to go down this other path as well or not. But I really did love neuroscience and ended up doing some research in a lab at the Rockefeller University this summer after my sophomore year and became really interested in the brain and 
subsequently, I mean, I could have also kind of become a researcher in neuroscience, but I knew, and that would actually appeal to me briefly, but I knew that it would be much harder to combine a research career with creative writing, whereas I thought that medicine would work a little bit better as a kind of dual career. And, you know, I find it interesting, the psychiatry and the kind of writing you do, which is sometimes fiction, sometimes nonfiction, but especially you're writing, a lot of it's exploring people. And so there are two different ways of exploring people and the way they think. Do you find the two of them intertwine? Absolutely. And over the years, I've thought a lot about the commonalities between the practice of psychiatry, which I do love. I have found it very interesting. I think that once I was in medical school, I can say I didn't love all of medical school. In fact, some of it was quite difficult for me, but I was really fascinated by hearing people's stories and genuinely interested in getting to know people in all their complexity. And I will say that even after practicing psychiatry for a couple of decades now, there are still things that surprise me. And that's true when, when I'm reading as well and when I'm writing. I think that probably the common element is that I do think that people are really interesting and the range of experiences that we all have and can learn about from one another is, for me at least, part of what makes life worth living. So I interact with those stories in a very different way when I'm in my office at you know, in Harvard Square than when I'm kind of typing by myself in my home office. Of course, I've been in my home office a lot more in the last uh, year and a half for everything. <laughs> What's your most recent work? Well, my most recent published work is a collection of short stories, which came out during the pandemic. It came out in November of 2020, and it's called Minus One. And they're stories that I've written actually over a number of years while I was working on some other longer projects. And so now I'm kind of turned my attention back to actually some older things that I was working on before that book came out. So uh, actually working on a memoir that I started just before the pandemic and I had completed a draft and now it, it needs to incorporate this seismic change that happened for me and for all of us in the last couple of years. And how was the pandemic change what you'd say in a memoir? Does it change your perspective on what you had written before, or you just need to add on to it? I think a little of both. So it was a book about the idea of making home at sort of recreating home at various stages and after major changes in life. And so the pandemic, I think, has made us all kind of reconsider what it means to be home, to find home. And so I think it's going to probably be woven through the book in one way or another now. And probably also there will have to be some specific sections kind of added on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you wrote a piece earlier this year about your mother and sort of the, the your summer experiences with your mom. Can you talk a little bit about the reflections you shared in that piece? Yeah, that piece. So I have also been writing a number of new essays in the last year or so, in part because I was stuck in the longer projects. <laughs> I found it hard to be very creative kind of right in the middle of the pandemic. And I, I think that that's starting to come back, but it's been a tough year. So the piece that you're referring to was an essay about moving my mom up to Boston in the height of the pandemic. And, you know, she had been recently widowed, was alone in, in New York. And my brother and I really wanted her to be closer to one of us. And 
I was lucky enough to be able to sort of find an apartment to rent for her. And she moved up here in August of 2020. And I had kind of the distinct pleasure of finding a new way to interact with my mom after a lifetime of, you know, feeling like I knew her really well. Like we, we had a good relationship, but I found that it's a different stage of life for her. It's a different time in my life for me. And then we're both in this different place than either of us has lived in the past, but here together. So it was fun to work on that piece and think about, I guess, change as a force for good. I think sometimes change feels certainly to me a little frightening and sometimes overwhelming. And my initial reaction to change tends to be to not welcome it. And so I've been working on being more accepting of change because I think probably change is the only constant that we can count on. That's probably right. And interestingly <laughs> enough, I, with my sister and I and our family moved our father to uh, Boston in August of 2020 as well. Oh, so wow. it is a, definitely a transition period for a lot of people in our class, I think. And that's one of the things that really struck me about your piece, just because you have this you know, shared history, this place we used to have our summers, and we uh, don't have our summers there because we sold that cabin in the woods. But in some ways, it's been good to have him closer because he's not uh-huh. that close to me, but he's close to my sister and he's closer than he was before the pandemic and to have that interaction. But it's changed. The dynamic and the, the roles are changed. Who takes right. care of who has changed, right? which has um, had sweet moments and then moments of frustration for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And shortly after I wrote that piece, my mother had a health crisis. And in some ways it was great that she was here, but in some ways it didn't matter because in COVID, I couldn't go to the hospital. They wouldn't let me visit. And so um, like many people, I think, who had situations like that during the pandemic, I felt very helpless. And it was really frightening to have a family member in the hospital and not be there and not be able to, you know, I mean, I, I also do have medical knowledge and I tend to feel like I need to be there to make sure the care is being managed properly. I don't know that in reality, my being there or not makes much difference, but I'm sure it does to your mother. I'm sure it does. So luckily things went well and she was able to recover and and is doing much better now. So, but I, I do think had she been still in New York, managing that from afar would have been just even much worse. Yeah. As my kids, kids know, I I keep saying, you don't know if you don't go, like you have to be with each other uh, to know what's happening. So I'm glad you were there for her. So a couple of years back, you wrote a piece in the Modern Love column of the New York Times that ultimately was made into a, was adapted, I guess, a bit (laughs) for the screen as well, where Minnie Driver plays you. But I think that the, the piece itself, which I thought was very, very moving, was something. Can you talk a little bit about what compelled you to write that, to share that experience? Yeah, thanks, Tim. So that essay was, it was a big departure for me from other things I had written in the past and that it was a personal essay. And it was about the loss of my husband uh, to cancer, but really about kind of what we hold on to and what we let go of when we're recovering from or or kind of just dealing with uh, major loss. And so the piece was about the car that we shared, which was an Alfa Romeo, a convertible spider and driving the car and what the car meant to me and my relationship both with the car and, and obviously with my late husband, Larry. 
And then also about kind of, you know, it became a metaphor for moving into other relationships in life and in, in my life. The piece had, I would say, the most, the biggest outpouring of response of anything I've written in my life. So that was kind of a surprise to me. I think it did connect with so many people. And some of it was really unexpected. Like I, before I heard from readers, I had always assumed that the Modern Love column was read mostly by women, but I got a lot of fan mail from men. And I don't know if that's because I wrote about a car. I got a lot of responses in which, you know, the, the essay kind of posed this rhetorical question, like, should I keep the car or should I sell it? And a lot of people felt like I was asking for a direct answer to that question. So in particular, men um, weighed in on <laughs> well, whether or sometimes not men, I should sell. We can't, sometimes we're not too bright. We're very <laughs> literal very, beasts. It was very sweet. And uh, more than one person told me I should sell it and buy a Miata. Um, <laughs> I don't so, think that was the point of your essay. <laughs> you weren't no, seeking a transportation advice. I wasn't seeking direct advice about the car, but it was very, and I, I heard from people who shared very, very poignant stories of their own losses and um, their own beautiful experiences with cars they had loved. Um, so uh, the essay also kind of showed me that when I really pushed myself to be very honest and maybe to reveal more than I sometimes uh, am willing to reveal that maybe that actually makes the writing deeper and connects with people in the way that I hope to connect when I'm writing. Yeah. And I think that was the powerful part of the piece is that, you know, I think we all, one of our classmates said to me recently, we all sort of accumulate loss at this point in our lives. And the poignancy of the piece, I think, was to acknowledge the pain of the loss, but also the sweetness of the memory, and then grapple with what you need to hold on to the good parts of that relationship and carry it forward. And does an object help? Because for me, some objects do help, if I'm being honest. But how much longer can you do you need to carry something? Absolutely. I think, yeah, there are questions that have you know different answers for different people. And I think also the answers change as we go through our, our lives, right? So I did, you know... <laughs> In the spirit of uh, full disclosure, I did sell that car when I moved to Boston. And I think it was the right decision because, you know, Boston has ice and salt on the roads and it would have just killed the car. And I still do miss that car. (laughs) So I, you know, I had a very sweet experience related to the essay where uh, an old friend from high school read the essay. And it turns out that she and her husband live up in Massachusetts in Newton so she got in contact with me and said, you know, well, we have two vintage Alfa Romeos. Like, if you ever want to go driving, come hang out with us. And we actually did that this fall. So I went out there and, you know, we had dinner together and I drove the Alphas with them. And, you know, it was a blast. And it was also like a new old connection um, that sort of came from, from that essay. That's terrific. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. The Amazon episode, the TV episode, 
So I was greatly honored to have Minnie Driver play play me. I would say that was the highlight of the of the episode. Uh, and I think they did a really nice job. I was not consulted in any way. So, you know, the essay was adapted and then they completely changed the ending, which is really weird when you're talking about like your actual life. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was both familiar to me, like, oh, yeah, this is kind of like what I went through. And then partly like watching, you know, a movie that was about someone else because mm-hmm. certainly didn't follow the essay in the end. But I do think it captured the spirit of my essay and the the kind of longing and the the power of an object. And there was some slightly um, magical thinking or maybe mystical experiences that I had because there were a couple of references in that episode that actually resonated for who my husband had been. And they were sort of things that had not been in my essay. So either the writers who worked on the adaptation like Googled him and got a lot of information about him and somehow wove it into the essay, or it's like some force beyond all of us (laughs) making its way into the episode. Wow. That is something. (laughs) That is something. So let me just switch gears here. You, you indicated, you know, that you've been working with college students in your practice for a long time. And so many of us have college students or recent college <laughs> graduates. Our sons were roommates after college. And uh, we have one in college now and one about to go to college. Are there things that you've seen change over time in the mental health of of those going to college? Obviously not asking for you to talk about client confidences, really just sort of major trends and, and that kind of thing. I've been working with college students for about, oh God, it's about probably 25 years now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so longer than uh, longer than my kids' ages, which is sort of weird. I do think there have been some trends. And the concerning one is that it just seems like more and more students encounter difficulties. And, you know, those of us who work with students are constantly asking ourselves, is it is it that more people are having trouble or that we're just picking it up? more than we used to. And I don't think there's a clear answer to that. It's probably a little bit of both. I do think that there were certain trends that were happening when I was a parent myself, and, and I think are continuing now with, you know, perhaps over-parenting or what's been called helicopter parenting or not giving adolescents and young adults kind of the space to take on more responsibilities and, and maybe experience failure a little bit. And so when they get to college, they are kind of thrown by the by their first experiences with perhaps rejection or, or failure. And I think that, you know, I've worked at, at selective colleges, and I, I think that there's a trend that, again, seems to be getting more pronounced, where it's become so difficult to get into the, some, you know, the selective colleges that the things that adolescents have to do to make themselves, as we say, competitive are so extreme. I think much more extreme than when you and I went to college. Oh, for sure. There's no doubt about it. So that has a huge mental health impact. And I think even as families recognize it, it's very hard to step away from that, the treadmill of, especially in in families where education is valued, right? And, you know, Harvard had an accept rate last year of like 3.5%, which is it's just sort of mind-blowing. And so the result of that, I think, is that kids feel devalued because they may have worked extremely hard and they may have a lot of qualities that would make them fantastic 
college students, including at a place like Harvard, but they may not have gotten in just because the numbers are crazy and there is an element of luck, (laughs) especially in the final rounds of, I think, cuts that the admissions committees are making. So, So the kids who don't get in suffer. But what I see is that the kids who do get in also suffer. So they've gone through this experience. And I'm not saying that it's it's only that. I think that obviously there are many, many things that go into why kids struggle or why some kids struggle and some kids don't. But I would say universally, I'm hearing now something I didn't hear as much maybe 10 years ago, which is that students frequently feel like imposters. You know, they come into my office already knowing the phrase imposter syndrome, but they really experience this, you know, this sense of not being enough, not being good enough you know, including the ones who made the cut to a highly competitive school like Harvard. So this pervasive sense of um, inadequacy is, is, I think, new. Yeah. And I think it's, at least I've, I've heard it from some uh, students at institutions. It's almost, I don't know the exact word for it, but it's almost like survivor guilt. Like I got in and that person who is maybe in my eyes as worthy or more worthy didn't, what am I doing here? Yeah. It's fascinating. And I would say there's also what I'm seeing more, you know, clinically we call it social anxiety, but I have really started to wonder whether it's, you know, social anxiety disorder or almost the norm that there is this level of fear that, you know, young adults are not presenting themselves well enough to their peers. And I think a lot of it is fueled by social media and this desire to curate your presence and I mean, students talk to me about their brand and how they're their brand. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, you know, again, I think when we think about the just the cultural forces that we're living with now and how they impact mental health, sometimes we forget that for young adults who are developing their their sense of self, some of the ways we're thinking about that is are, are toxic. So what advice would you give to the the parents of our class who are either got college age students or sort of like Lisa and I right now? And I think, you no, know, you have kids who are just out of college, young adults. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. I yeah, mean, it is know, a tough one. It's a, it's I, a tough <laughs> job. It's funny. I was, I was talking to someone the other day who has a, a brand new baby. I'm like, I know that that has its own challenges, but like I had my hand. I, once I figured yeah. out how, like, how to swaddle, and change the diaper. I was like, I felt like, okay, I sort of got this for at least a little while. Yeah. Well, those are the swaddling is hard. I'm not sure I forgot the, the hang of that one. Oh, I was the master <laughs> swaddler. That was like a key role. That's great. Yeah. You know, and it's also, I always, I guess I'd preface this with saying it's easier to give advice than to actually like follow it. Parent, oh, yeah, right? for like, sure. It's so, it's so hard. But I do think that an overemphasis on achievement is problematic for the mental health of young adults. And at the same time, you want you want to help kids kind of develop their own goals and their own sense of self and, and you know, work hard toward their own goals. But maybe it's that to start to step back and, and figure help people figure out what their goals might be versus what family goals might be. And I guess not be afraid to let your kid experience bumps or difficulties. We sometimes talk about stress inoculation, which is a concept I love. What's that? I don't, I've never heard of that. What is that? Yeah. 
So, you know, we're all familiar with vaccination now, right? You introduced that. <laughs> yeah, I just got boosted the other day. I'm pro-vaccination for sure. Pro so how do I, how do I inoculate myself against stress? I would like to know that. So there's less research on that. So it's a little bit more theoretical than, you know, like COVID vaccination, but it's a similar idea that we need age appropriate amounts of stress in our life to learn how to cope with stress. And there is actually some, some data like from animal research that shows that, you know, like rat pups exposed to certain kinds of stress early on and then comforted by their, you know, parents do better in stressful situations later on in life. So people have kind of extrapolated that to humans. There's like very limited human data, but I love the concept and I think it kind of makes sense, right? So, and this is, you know, less for those of us who have college age kids, because that window has closed for us. (laughs) Like hopefully we gave our children some opportunity to not like overdo for them so that they experience some. And again, you don't want to overwhelm your kid with stress. I guess, you know, thinking forward, like college graduates, right? Um, Again, kind of letting them experience difficulties that are age appropriate. So again, don't, don't abandon your child if they need help, but maybe allow them to ask for help when they need it or, or, you know, set parameters around what they can and can't do for themselves. I will say that sometimes when I have visits from my young adult children and, you know, from my out of state child, she might still bring laundry to my house because she doesn't have uh, the washer dryer in her apartment. And so it's easier to just like take the laundry with her, but I don't do her laundry for her. She does it herself. (laughs) So that's, I mean, you know, that's sort of a silly example, but, but just those places where I think the parenting culture in our lifetime has been to do for our children. And especially if we have resources and, and we have knowledge, it's tempting to want to jump in and help. And there are times where I think it's better not to do that. And I say that knowing it's extremely difficult for me to, to do myself, but I try really hard to, to just create that space where kids can, I mean, by the time they're out of college, they're adults. Right. And I would say that (laughs) ideally, right. (laughs) Ideally. Now I will say if I'm putting on my like college psychiatry hat, we talk about this concept of emerging adulthood. And when I first started my career, that was defined as like 18 to 24. And it was based on the work of a psychologist who later kind of rewrote the initial paper and extended the range to, so now the upper limit is 28. Oh, I was about to say, hopefully the upper limit is 56, but <laughs> it's, it's not, it's not yet 56, but, uh, we could make that case. Yeah, there are a couple of people in my life who might debate that. In any <laughs> event, that's great. So we are now at the part of our podcast where we have our lightning round. So some okay. rapid fire questions. Are you a cake person or a pie person? I'm gonna go with cake. I do like pie though, having lived in the South. But cake is the first answer that jumped into my mind. All right. And which cake would you have? Like what, like if we had like one at reunion, it's like, oh my God, this is going to be the perfect cake. What should we serve? Some kind of like chocolate ganache, like a chocolate hazelnut. (laughs) Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. And we're taping this near dinner time. So I don't (laughs) think I have a chocolate ganache cake in my near future though. I have to say that. So what book have you read 
recently that you found was particularly interesting? Is there anything that you've read that really grabbed you? I've been reading a lot. And so, especially in the last year and a half. So that's a hard question. I just read a book by a friend of mine named Alex Clayman called Something New Under the Sun, which is not my usual genre. It's a little bit more like dystopian surrealism, but I just, I found it really compelling. So, you know, it's about a time when water is in such short supply that the the poor are drinking an artificial kind of water. And, you know, it's about corporate greed and, and climate change and Hollywood. (laughs) And, um, and she wrote it a few years ago, but it just feels so, I mean, I think, unfortunately, it feels less dystopian and more realist fiction now. Yeah. But um, that's the first one that came to mind. If you were going to go back and relive one of the four years at Yale, which would it be? Oh, man. See, I don't have a quick answer to that one. No, it's tough. It's really tough. You know, I think senior year was really good. So I might say senior year because there was a lot of good stuff going on by then, even though I think I'm probably forgetting the stressful parts of senior year. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, I seem to like when I think back, I don't really focus on the stressful parts or a couple stressful parts. For the most part, I think about the good things. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could answer that one myself. But I was just about to ask you what, what you would say. I would say I have to say, like, especially watching, having watched now three kids go through freshman year where they really dive in and they explore. Like, I would do that again. Just like, for me, it was such an eye-opening experience. I just, that first month, meeting everybody who was so different than where I had come from. It was a, a really formative month of my life. And it wasn't because of any particular event. It's just because there were all these people who made me realize that there was this much bigger world out there. Yeah, that's absolutely true about freshman year. I would say my personal problem with freshman year is that I was doing so many pre-med classes that I did not really enjoy. And I would say by senior year, I was taking classes that I loved and discovering, you know, I feel like if I had it to do over again, I would major in something different than I did. And I figured that out probably by my junior or senior year. I would have just done a post-bac year and done the pre-med requirements. I'm always telling people who are interested in med school that like, don't waste time in college taking, <laughs> taking pre-med classes because they're not the really exciting part of college and you can do it later. I spoke to one of our classmates on a podcast, Lorraine uh, Wang, who actually got a second bachelor's degree later in life. So, wow. you know, it's, um, you can open your, your mind. <laughs> um, so uh, wow. final question, do you have any major projects that you have or you're working on in addition to your, or other than your memoir that you would hope to have done in, in the next 10 years? Um, I'm hoping to have other books. That's my goal. I do have a novel that, you know, that is also basically finished that needs some revision. So I'm hoping over the next shorter than 10 years to to finish both those books. That would be great. We hope we get to read them. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. It was great. Great talking to you. And I'm, I'm excited to see everybody in uh, May. That's great. Actually, June. Um, June. June June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th. So, thank you. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely, 
in an endless parade of Zoom meetings. One Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.